Amy Goodman is a host and executive producer of Democracy Now!, which you all know, a national, daily, independent, award-winning news program airing on over 1,300 public television and radio stations worldwide. Uh, she has co-authored five New York Times bestsellers, her first three, Standing Up to the Madness, Static, and Exception to the Rulers. She wrote with her brother, journalist David Goodman. Um, she has won numerous, numerous, numerous awards, including the George Polk Award, Robert F. Kennedy Prize for International Reporting, and the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia Award. And her brother David, who's going to get the afternoon starter for us, uh, is an independent journalist, contributing writer for Mother Jones, and the best-selling author of 10 books, including four books that he wrote together with Amy. Um, his work has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, Outside, and a whole host of other publications. Um, he also hosts a popular radio show, The Vermont Conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Goodman and Amy Goodman. That'll work. Well, great to be here, and uh, I love this store. Having a tree, you know, what is it? A tree grows in Brooklyn, a tree grows in Los Angeles, coming out of the, rising up out of the books and covering us. Um, I live in Vermont, so now I really feel at home here with seeing the trees here. But also because on our book tour, uh, and this is a 100-city tour, that's not only a celebration of uh, our new book, but it's of democracy now, which is 20 years old. And celebrating independent media, celebrating independent bookstores, which, as you know, are a uh, unfortunately vanishing breed around the country. And um, also as a fan of real paper books with pages. I especially love just hanging out in these bookstores. So um, when Amy speaks, I get to look at, you know, forage through the books, and that's one of my favorite things to do. So um, how did this all begin? You're probably wondering. This democracy now phenomenon that uh, many of you may have kind of joined, joined into the main current of this experience at various points. Well, it actually began with a phone call that Amy got in uh well, in a safe house in Haiti in 1995, and uh, she was there covering an election, and there, elections, um, unlike here, you can get killed for going to vote. You can get killed for who you support. And much as you may think you want to kill somebody right now who's in the election, and I won't <laughs> suggest who, there are probably people in this room who'd be ready to go at it at the mention of any number of names. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in in many places around the world, that kind of dissent is deadly. So she gets a call about another election. Would she be interested in hosting a show about the upcoming 1996 U.S. election between then-President Bill Clinton and uh, Senator Bob Dole? And you may have forgotten this name, Ross Perot. There were three candidates in that election. So she accepted this challenge. The election show was to run from February and fold up after the election in November. 
Well, when Amy came home and told uh, my parents and me uh, and our two brothers, she had a new project. Now, she had been the news director at WBAI in New York City, a sister Pacifica station to KPFK. And, um, well, my parents were thrilled. First of all, Amy had been managed to get herself in and out of a lot of harrowing situations. So there was not the least of which was Haiti. But as some of you may know, in 1991, Amy survived a massacre in East Timor, where several hundred people were uh, killed by the, Indonesia, the occupying Indonesian military. East Timor, a country that had really descended and vanished behind, at least in terms of the U.S. corporate media, had vanished off the map. Uh, the Indonesian uh, military was occupying the country, killed one-third of the population. And unless you were a reader of Noam Chomsky, he was one of the few people who continued to tell the story of East Timor, you've never heard of this place. So Amy and journalist Alan Nairn had gone to cover what was happening in East Timor. This story we tell in detail in, uh, in this book. Um, so she had survived this massacre. And so as she comes home to tell our parents that she's going to be the host of an election show, they were thrilled. Finally, a boring desk job for our daughter. This was, she was going to be like Walter Cronkite, the voice of God, just sitting there holding forth, telling people who's up, who's down, who's hot, who's not, and the week after the election was over, go back to something mundane and safe that didn't involve guns being pointed at her. And of course, like in the great tradition of American pundits uh, who hold forth on everything and get it completely wrong, our family offered a variety of useless opinions. Uh, I think my contribution to the conversation was telling her that that name, Democracy Now!, is never going to work. People will never tune into that show. You need to go stealth. You know, just something really boring and bland like Point Counterpoint or The Amy Show or something. And um, she sort of smiled, a pain smiled, and did what she's done all of her professional and actually, I can say as her brother, all of her life, ignore all of us and do exactly what she thought was the right thing to do. And thank goodness for that. Um, so as far as this boring desk job went, um, my parents who uh, live on in spirit with us, they both passed away, but are both a huge inspiration to Amy and I, um, didn't have long to sort of sit back and, and rest in the idea that she was going to be out of the line of fire. In the intro, we give... Um, an independent reporter's rap sheet. As reporters, we shouldn't have to get a record for putting things on the record. But here's my rap sheet for covering the news during the last 20 years. This is Amy's. 1998, detained with Democracy Now! producer Jeremy Scahill at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland while covering nuns and priests from the pacifist plowshares movement who threw blood on a B-1 bomber used to bomb Iraq in 1996. 1999, detained and deported by Indonesia twice while trying to reach Indonesian-occupied East Timor to cover a UN independence referendum. This is 
eight years after she survived a massacre there, she was coming for a return visit. Um, you know, with a track record of success like that, you might as well try to go back in again, although they were intent on trying to stop her. 2003, arrested in front of the White House on International Women's Day with writers Maxine Hong Kingston, Alice Walker, Terry Tempest Williams, Honor Moore, and others while covering their protest against the impending Iraq War. In fact, Skylight could have a sale of the various writers, thinkers, and artists who have been arrested with Amy over the years, and it would probably be a pretty, you know, a, a good draw. 2008, arrested at the Republican National Convention in St. Paul, Minnesota, when demanding that police release Democracy Now! producers from custody. They had been filming anti-war protesters. 2009, detained by Canadian border guards while driving into Canada to speak about press freedom at the Vancouver Public Library and the University of Victoria. These kind of government crackdowns are a threat to democracy and are the reason that democracy now continues to exist and thrive. So 20 years later, democracy now continues. It did not fold up, as we well know. The demand for the show actually increased after that 1996 election. And it continues to bring us the voices of movements, movements like Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, the climate change movement, the LGBTQ rights movement, and many, many others that we document in here. Well, so what's the big deal about covering movements? Well, think about for a moment what happened after Occupy. So in the corporate media, Occupy Wall Street was a flash in the pan and often deemed a failure. It was uh, a, a rather um, you know, confusing in the eyes of the media attempt to hold public space, raise a few issues like economic justice and inequality, and, uh, and then it went away. The police broke it up violently in Oakland, New York, uh, L.A., and many other places. So did Occupy Wall Street really just vanish and go away, a failure, an attempt by scruffy, you know, banjo-playing people, which is how it was described by a CNN anchor, uh, Aaron Burnett, at the time? Well, look at the chronology. So... Fall 2011, Occupy Wall Street. In January 2012, Mitt Romney is recorded secretly uh, talking about the 47%, the parasites, the people who are just, you know, believe they're entitled to things. Well, we had a new language already at that time, thanks to Occupy. We knew about the 1%, the 99%, and now we had Romney's 47%. Inequality and economic justice ended up being a defining feature of that presidential election and took out Mitt Romney and essentially, uh, you know, a leading figure in one of the two major parties was taken out. I would say uh, a lot thanks to the new understanding we had about how the world works by Occupy. But it keeps going. Later in 2012, uh, at um, Thanksgiving, Black Friday, Walmart workers walk off their jobs demanding a higher minimum wage. Um, a day later, fast food workers, about 200 fast food workers in New York City, walk off the jobs demanding something unthinkable, $15 
an hour for a minimum wage. Unthinkable because it's double the federal minimum wage. And we had many leading people, uh, leading politicians, dismissing it outright. Leading politicians, like the governor of New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo. So let me read you what Governor Cuomo said at that time. Well, first, uh, to give away the punchline, as we all know, California and New York just made $15 minimum wage the law. So, as we write, in July 2015, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who has opposed numerous progressive initiatives, responded to the relentless protests by low-wage workers and by progressive New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio by announcing that fast food workers throughout New York State should be paid $15 an hour, a 70% increase over the state minimum wage. This represented an about-face for the man dubbed Governor 1% by activists. In March 2015, so keep track of these months here, in March 2015, Cuomo had dismissed a plan by New York State Assembly Democrats to raise the state minimum wage to $15 by 2018. Quote, God bless them, shoot for the stars, Cuomo said sarcastically during a speech in Rochester, suggesting their goal was unrealistic. He later told reporters that the figure was, quote, too high. On May 6, 2015, so in March, shoot for the sky, Two months later, on May 6, Cuomo publishes an op-ed piece in the New York Times headlined, Fast Food Workers Deserve a Raise. And he writes, Nowhere is the income back gap more extreme and obnoxious than in the fast food industry. Fast food CEOs are among the highest paid corporate executives. The average fast food CEO made $23.8 million in 2013. Can you imagine that? 23, that's the average wage of this fast food CEO? Uh, more than quadruple the average from 2000. Meanwhile, entry-level food service workers in New York State earn on average about $17,000 uh, a year, which amounts to eight fifty an hour. Nationally, fast food workers' uh, wages have increased only 0.3% in the last 15 years. Uh, and he goes on to write about how fast food workers, uh, in New York State ranks first in public assistance spending per fast food worker, about $7,000 a year. That's a $700 million annual cost to taxpayers. Well, you would think that Governor Cuomo's op-ed was written by grassroots activists, and as we all know, it was. Governor Brown and Governor Cuomo don't make these kind of changes uh, simply out of generosity or out of largesse, and as we just heard, he didn't even want to do it at all. It was people like you, it was people in the streets, it was some brave and probably very frightened low-wage workers at Walmarts, McDonald's, and Taco Bells who put their bodies on the line, and thankfully, Democracy Now! was there to chronicle what they had to say and to put it on the airwaves. So... (laughs) 20 years later... You have been reassured, if you tune into Democracy Now!, that you are not crazy, you are not wrong, and you are not alone. Democracy Now! has been the beating heart, the voice that brings you the other voices in your community, in your world, who are calling, who are doing everything they can do to make the world a better place. So here's a happy birthday to Democracy Now!, 
and a thank you to the most courageous, most essential journalist and big sister who I have, Amy. Thank you, David. Now, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Amazing to be here. Amazing to be here at Skylight Bucks. It really is. We know we're on a great 100-city... Wait, who just said that? 100-city tour. Hey, Dan, go, I'll go on this one. You go on this one. 100-city um, tour. Um, when we're making a stop at Skylight Book. So I really, really enjoy it. But first, um, you've met the wonderful David Goodman, uh, remarkable journalist, uh, investigative reporter, skier, environmental writer, writes the best books on backcountry skiing you'll ever read, not to mention on South Africa. Um, But our co-author... And my colleague at Democracy Now! for 16 of the last 20 years is Dennis Moynihan. Dennis, who... is also the maestro of this 100-city tour. So if you find it upsetting, not that David and I would, uh, to go at a pace of, I don't know, is it seven cities a day? Uh, it's all Dennis's wonderful responsibility. I like, I think Missouri, we're in three cities. This weekend, it's tomorrow we start in <coughs> Santa Rosa, Dan, you'll have to tell me, and Willett, Redway, and Sunday, Davis. Davis, and Chico, and then we end up in Berkeley, and then we'll broadcast from San Francisco. Oh, that's the other amazing part. Every morning at 3, we go to a TV studio, <laughs> and that's what we did this morning over to KCET Link, our wonderful colleagues um, here in Los Angeles who broadcast Democracy Now! on KCET and Link TV, and... Um, they got there a little before we did this morning at 3. We were a little bit late because last night the event celebrating KPFK ran a little late till around, I don't know, 11 or 12. Um, and But on the road from, where was it? Uh, Columbia, Missouri, Mizzou. You remember Mizzou where the first Jonathan Butler an African-American student went on a hunger strike demanding the university administration deal with racism and that Tim Wolfe, the president, resign. Um, He then got the powerhouse of the university to his shock, and I think many. Um, He got the African-American football players to sign on. He wasn't trying to convince them. They did this on their own when they saw he was going on a hunger strike that he really meant what he was fighting for. And they all joined arms and they said the next football game will not be played if we don't have these issues addressed. And then the white athletes and the white coach joined with the black athletes. And that was it. Because the Football team is the source of power at this university and many others, right? The football coach makes something like $4 million, eight, nine times what the university president makes. So the university president at that point was toast and resigned. 
that inspired so many other uh, student groups around the country. We started our tour last week on Wednesday in Ithaca, New York, Ithaca College, where the students banded together, POC at IC, People of Color at Ithaca College. They made similar demands, and their president, Tom Roshan, resigned. Um, and this is happening all over the country, but it's not just about a particular person. Um, and I think all of these students that we've met along the way are very clear about that. It's about a system. Uh, it's about addressing, redressing wrongs that have been going on for a very long time. But before I continue speaking, the great... Dennis Moynihan, just a few words for his inspiration, his writing talents. In the midst of this 100-city tour, he is also building a full-power radio station that will be going online in Winter Park, Colorado, in well, within the next few months, uh, because he is... Uh, real light in the community media movement all over this country, helping to grow independent media. Dennis. Hi there, and thanks to the folks at, thanks to, thanks to the folks at Skylight Books for doing this. It's wonderful to come back here. Uh, and I want to assure every, everyone that what you hear on Democracy Now! is actual, vetted, accurate news, and all of the hyperbole that Amy just larded on you is, is not typical. But I thank you, Amy, for that overly generous introduction. Not uh, Anyway, so uh, we are on this, uh, what will amount to a 100-city tour. We probably have about 85 events, because we get, we announce uh, events on a rolling basis, and then we respond to some of the most uh, kind of uh, vicious uh, responses, why aren't you coming to our town? And then so we kind of like, okay, we'll figure it out. And oh, I mean, my God, every time we send out the 100 City every week, we send it out. You might have gotten it this week with our Tavis. Uh, you can link to Tavis and see. I had a great time with Tavis the other night. And tonight, I was just texting with some of my producers figuring out what I'm going to say on Bill Maher tonight. But um, And if you have any ideas. But, um, wait, what did you just say? That we had we had cities as well. Oh yes, yes, yes. So we sent out this hundred city and we think, oh my god, this is unbelievably impressive. And we're so happy and we're trying to help every station that we possibly can. You don't get calls back, you don't get email responses within two seconds from the cities that people are in because they're just happy and they're going to go. You only get it from irate listeners and viewers. I have never seen something so vicious. You send out a hundred cities. What? Cleveland's toast? What you mean? What? <laughs> it says um, Columbus, Ohio is chopped liver? Uh, we do. Does Ohio mean nothing to you? And the amazing thing is we were just in Columbus, Ohio on Friday. But when we send out the 100 City Tour since Dennis is actually, as he's speaking here, believe it or not, I know that in his pocket this phone is working to set up the end cities and I'm sure we'll be back in Ohio. But we cut off everyone we've already been to. So last night in Los Angeles, the one that goes out today will not say yesterday's. So they immediately assume we have forgotten them when we started with them. And they said, all right, maybe not Columbus, but Cleveland. But are you kidding? You're not going to... Kenosha. 
Kenosha? <laughs> and the thing is, we love all of these places, and maybe we will. I don't know, but maybe go ahead. Go. Why, uh, why don't you start uh, sorry, with wait, our, little inter- <laughs> our little interaction this morning as we were racing well, here with the Los Angeles Police Department? Uh, fortunately, no. Fortunately, it wasn't. It wasn't technically the LAPD. Fortunately, but it was. Uh, Having worked with Amy for about 16 years, it's uh, it isn't a complete day on the job unless until we've had a, a, a confrontation with some authority figure or other. <laughs> and as you said, you know, I'm trying to coordinate a lot of stuff, and we have a really great West Coast volunteer who does a lot of our logistics and driving, and he had a foot fracture, so uh, he can't make it. So I'm doing a lot of that now. And uh, while I was on the phone driving in Burbank. I see like these two motorcycle cops on either side of the car looking at me and I'm like, oh. And so we had to uh, pull over and yeah, they did remind me or alert me that the, it was illegal to talk uh, on the phone while driving in LA. So anyway, that was... Uh, yeah, and what I, happened? I, 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 uh, I deployed my uh, gray hair and, and, and lighter skin tone and my maleness and got... Uh, <laughs> I used white male privilege and got a I got a warning from the cop. So, but what did they say? Oh, right. What did they say? They, they I said, you know, where I come from, you know, Colorado. You know, I was talking on the phone and marijuana is legal. Not instead, but <laughs> uh, they said, well, just it is illegal here. And it is also illegal to murder, so please don't do that. <laughs> they, said, they said that to us. Dennis yeah. said, well, you know, it, it's legal to drive yourself, and which it shouldn't be in Colorado. Yeah. And I couldn't, I didn't know. I don't drive in New York, so I didn't know if it's legal or not. So if I said in New York, then they give me two tickets because I didn't yeah. know about New York. But, uh, right, now the, the police officer's response is, yeah. I'll give you a reprieve this time. But we also want you to know it's illegal to murder in Los right. Angeles. Yeah. So so don't include that in your day. And I said, don't worry, we're way too busy. Yeah, no, but it... Uh, but in all seriousness, we are going to Cleveland to uh, cover the Republican National Convention this year, and we made you know some initial early plans, and now it turns out you know the conventions are usually stale, staged, corporate-controlled, private parties for the elite. And um, a lot of the party operatives go and it's kind of a junket for small time precinct captains and things but the uh, this year it's going to be there will probably be more mayhem at the Republican convention and potentially at the Democratic as well so we'll, we'll be there in the, the Republican conventions in Cleveland this year uh, and the Dems are in Philly um, yeah, I started listening to Democracy Now! the year it began broadcast in 96, and uh, in that instance I was uh, working as a caretaker on an island off the coast of Maine. Pretty uh, relatively isolated job. I had to commute via sea kayak about six miles to go get groceries or to another island if I wanted to use a payphone. To So it was kind of uh, way out there, but this radio station, WERU, was out of Blue Hill, Maine, broadcast Democracy Now!, and it was really an important link for me. And in subsequent years, I'd done, I started some um, jail solidarity and organizing activity with uh, Leonard Peltier, prisoner, pr- political prisoner, um, who is still in federal prison. Uh, he's been there, he's been in, since, incarcerated since 75 for uh, defending indigenous uh, elders on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Uh, that uh, work 
and others brought me in touch and, and really working with Democracy Now! we hear so often that um, pr prisoners value the work we do every day and it's really especially important that the, the work that Democracy Now! broadcasts on radio and television and radio in particular is a very powerful source. It's a very important source of information for, for people in prison and you have uh, the second largest prison population in the U.S., second only to Texas here in, the, in California. Uh, and we, we get correspondence from prisoners around the country and, and you know, many from California. Uh, the, uh, Leonard, uh, when I worked for the Leonard Peltier Defense Committee, uh, we worked to get, we sought clemency, executive clemency from Bill Clinton. Uh, you hear a lot of people are now revisiting the, the policies and, and practices of the Clinton administration. Uh, a lot of people forget that as he was going out the door in 2000, 2001, uh, he gave a lot of people executive clemency. Uh, he gave, uh, you know, Mark Rich was a fugitive uh, billionaire campaign donor of his who got it. Uh, there was um, some uh, kind of criminal uh, partners of his half-brother were let out of prison. Leonard was not. Um, after that uh, campaign for Peltier, failed at the time. Uh, I went out and uh, helped out at the office. I kind of took over the reins of the campaign office in Lawrence, Kansas because the folks there were so burnt out from all the work and uh, met with Leonard weekly in the prison uh, in his capacity as organizer and technically as a paralegal but also uh, spoke with him every day on the phone. Whenever he had access to the phone, he'd call in, and it was very easy at about 8 in the morning to call in and talk about the work of the Leonard Peltier Defense Committee and what we were going to do that day. And But the, we would start each conversation talking about what was on Democracy Now! that day because it was broadcast on community radio station KKFI in Kansas City, uh, which reached out into Lawrence. It reached Leavenworth, where the federal penitentiary was, where the U.S. Army uh, brig uh, is, where... Chelsea Manning is now imprisoned. Uh, so this, and Leonard said, uh, you know, that the, uh, he, he would say that he and the brothers would gather around a, uh, a small transistor radio in the yard and listen to that hour of Democracy Now! every weekday morning before being forced, marched off to work in like the, the slave labor camps, like the Unicor furniture factory that uh, the federal penitentiaries run. So uh, the, the news that they had access to was so important. They don't have uh, mobile devices. They, you know, typically, certainly back then, didn't have access to the internet. Now there's even, you know, mo modest access to email, but really it's uh, radio and television and print that serve that massive more you know more than two million people in this country in prison so if you uh, you know what we're doing on this tour is we're we're gathering news around the country producing the show as Amy said at incredibly early hours on the west coast uh, it's great when we travel in Europe because the show's at two in the afternoon and we get to sleep in but here we get up around two or three in the morning uh, but we're also raising money for Isn't stations. Ariana Huffington also on a book tour. The other day, I got this email, right, because uh, I got stuff from the Huffington Post that said, Ariana, um, her message, sleep 
rest. I thought this is a very funny tour. We should do it together. I, I want to have a debate. I want to have an on-stage debate between Amy and Ariana on the the value of sleep. No, it's all. <laughs> she is. Amy is very tireless, and 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 I'm not. But the. Uh, so at any rate, uh, you know, we are doing fundraisers for stations around the country, and it's really important to remember that we're not just individual consumers of news, but we're supporting institutions that serve people who, who really have no other access. Uh, and you never know, you know, if you're supporting KPFK, for example, who's going to just be browsing the dial and, and, and learn, and, and we meet... I mean, really, countless people who people come up when we're doing signings and say, you know, I just discovered you two months ago, two years ago. The British it, Channel. Uh, yeah, so it's such an important, and to support your community media institutions, that's, I want to make that point. We were, uh, got a word from the sister station of KPFK in Atlanta, WRFG, Radio Free Georgia. They said, we got a $65 donation today. 13 prisoners, 13 inmates from the U.S. Penitentiary in Atlanta pooled their money and made a, a contribution, and they told us about it because they mentioned Democracy Now! was one of the things. And there's, uh, you know, we produce both radio and TV and, you know, cross-platform digitally. And so the uh, high... HD video file gets downloaded every day and played on a prison system, a closed circuit system in, in some of the UK prisons. Uh, and they've told us that that access to that kind of news and information uh, has measurable, has had a measurable impact on the participation of those prisoners in, in their classroom activities so that they had about a 50% increase in uh, the prisoners deciding, you know, they have an option, I guess, to take a class or, or, or a program. And they attribute the increase, remarkable increase in participation through the engagement that they, uh, the viewers there have with Democracy Now! So it's just uh, a little bit to remember that while he we're here free on a beautiful afternoon in Hollywood, there's a lot of people who aren't, and uh, it's part of what inspires us and, and part of what we address in the book and in discussions on uh, mass incarceration and the movement to end it in this country. So it's uh, really an honor to be here. I have a feeling most of you came to hear this speaker, so I want to make sure that she reclaims the mic, and I'm going to uh, help circulating these Daily Digest sign-ups clipboards. It's the it's the uh, the basis of a strong grassroots organization, whether it's a media organization like Democracy Now! or otherwise. So if you have a chance to sign up for that for our mailing list, please do so. All right, Amy. Thank you. Oh, it is so... Can I just do one shout-out to a couple yes. uh, uh, to kind of environmental activists in, in the house? Or at least Steve Murphy's here, and uh, he's a fan of the show, I know, but also in his own right, a very right. dedicated environmental defender. So thanks. Is that all right? Um, the other day, I can't remember where we were. I think it was somewhere um, <laughs> that... Uh, Oh, I know, in Santa Cruz at the Rio Theater, this wonderful old theater that has a crying room upstairs. Uh, it means a glassed-in balcony so women could take their babies and breastfeed or whatever, and the kids could cry and they could enjoy the movies. Um, but uh, 
Keith McHenry, founder of Food Not Bombs, came in and said he just got out of jail so he could be a part of the event that night. (coughs) So it is truly wonderful to be back at Skylight, to be here in Los Angeles, to be in California where Pacifica Radio was born in 1949, 67 years ago today. We're going to be celebrating KPFA, the First Pacifica's birthday, on Sunday night at the First Community Church in Berkeley at 7.30 at night, and I'm really looking forward to being there. That's right. Lou Hill, the um, war resistor from World War II, came out of the detention camps and said there's got to be a media outlet that's not run by corporations that profit from war, but run by journalists and artists, and that's how Pacifica was born. The first Pacifica station, KPFA in Berkeley, 1949, then this station, KPFK, and I hope everyone gets not only one flyer, but takes gobs of them, whether or not you get a book, and passes these flyers out that show where you can get uh, KPFK in the greater Los Angeles area, 6 and 9 in the morning, Monday through Friday, on KPFK. 90.7 FM. Also, we're broadcasting from KCET Link, all broadcasting on KCET every morning and on Link TV. Also on KLCS, um, the Los Angeles uh, United School District TV station. In fact, today we did a post-show. We wanted to get him into the show, but we couldn't, and so we did it right after the show. I hope we'll play it on Monday when we're in San Francisco. Eric Mann, who started the Bus Riders Union, longtime civil rights activist, um, in what he did, what he was talking about today was uh, that the Los Angeles school district, and you may all know this, um, has its own police force. Its own. This is news to us in New York. We have the largest um, school system in New York. Los Angeles has the second largest school system. They have their own police department with their own tank M16s, rocket launchers, I think. I don't want to get this wrong. I think it was a launcher. And they got it through the Pentagon program of repurposing weapons from war abroad. What, to create war at home? And how the community banded together to say, we want these weapons. Not that you'll promise not to use them. We want these weapons out. We want you to return these weapons. Uh, Anyway, that's going to be on Democracy Now! on Monday. We might have posted it already online today. But we go from city to city and bring out the struggles of people in each city. That's why this tour is just so amazing. Um, So KPFK went on the air in 1959. My station, New York, WBAI 1960. And in the first years of operation, it's the first radio station um, in WBAI uh, in 1960 broadcast the debate between James Baldwin and Malcolm X over the effectiveness of nonviolent civil disobedience, the lunch counter sit-ins of the South, KPFT in Houston in the Petro Metro uh, went on the air in 1970, WPFW in Washington in 1977 in the power capital of the world. Um, Houston station, KPFT, uh, is the only station in the country whose transmitter was blown up, blown up by the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and if, within the first few weeks of operation, they strapped dynamite to the base of the transmitter and blew it to smithereens. And when they got back on their feet and... Um, 
rebuilt the transmitter. Uh, they blew up the station, by the way, when Arlo Guthrie was singing Alice's Restaurant, right in the middle of it. I mean, and I thought that was a good song. But um, uh, they went back on the air, and they blew it up again, uh, strapped 15 times the dynamite to the base of the transmitter and just blew it to smithereens. Uh, So now it's becoming a national event. Public television came into Houston in January of 1971 to broadcast the resurgence of KPFT when when they went back on the air for the second time and Arlo Guthrie came back to Houston to finish his song on the air for all of Houston to hear. You know, it's not like Pacifica had money for fundraising. Um, So the silver lining was it certainly exploded it into the consciousness of the potential listening audience of the people of Houston, but I do not recommend this as an advertising campaign for anyone. Now, I can't remember if it was the Grand Dragon or the Exalted Cyclops, because I often confuse his ti- their titles, but he said it was his proudest act. I think that's because he understood how dangerous Pacifica is. Dangerous because it allows people to speak for themselves and when you hear someone speaking from their own experience, whether it's a Palestinian child or uh, an Israeli grandmother, an aunt in Iraq, an uncle in Afghanistan, you begin to understand where they're coming from. I mean, I didn't say agree. Um, You know, maybe they sound like your baby, and I can't believe these little babies right here who said to me, I watch every day. I don't even know what to say. I mean, they can't be uh, more than five, six, seven years old, and I'm deeply touched. Um, uh, But um, maybe they sound like your child, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparent, your mother, your sister, and I'm not saying you agree with them. How often do we agree with our family members? But you understand, you sort of develop a common ground where they're coming from. It makes it much less likely that you'll want to destroy them. That understanding is the beginning of peace. I think the media can be the greatest force for peace on earth. Instead, all too often, it's wielded as a weapon of war. That's why we have to take the media back. I see the media as a huge kitchen table that stretches across the globe that we all sit around and debate and discuss the most important issues of the day, war and peace, life and death, and anything less than that is a disservice to the servicemen and women of this country. They can't have these debates on military bases. They rely on us in civilian society to have the discussions that lead to the decisions whether they live or die, whether they're sent to kill or be killed. Anything less than that is a disservice to a democratic society. You know, I really do think that the media prevents an independent media, an honest, authentic media, prevents the othering of people, which is so dangerous. I mean, think about the birther movement. Think about the challenging of President Obama. Now, We cover the protests around Obama's policy on so many issues. 
how is it possible that with the immigrants' rights movement, the anti-war movement, gay and lesbian movement, environmental movement, all of these movements together elected the first African-American president in history, an amazing achievement in a land with a legacy of slavery, and then he becomes the deporter-in-chief, right? Uh, and even the mainstream immigrants' rights groups that have people inside the White House, very close to him and outside, they're the ones who coined that term, deporter-in-chief. He's deported more immigrants than any president in history. How is it possible? And many groups, I think, after he was elected, were exhausted. They'd done something impossible. I mean, this remarkable history-making moment, the first African-American president. Um, but they perhaps exhausted, but also didn't want to contribute to the racist backlash. The birther movement saying, and think about the basis of the birther movement. Think also about who was one of the leaders of it. Donald Trump. You know, remember when he said he'd sent investigators Hawaii, he has the smoking gun. Has any reporter said, well, where is it? What do you have? Anyone challenging, demanding any truth from the Republican frontrunner here on so many issues? But um, he was one of the leaders of this movement that said, no, he wasn't born here, President Obama. Whether you voted for him or not, it's not about who you are politically for. And how could they get away with that? They play on the othering of people. What Does he look like you so he can't come from here? And that's terrifying. And then the presidential campaign now, whatever you think of Donald Trump, what, what, I mean, what's interesting is, along with Bernie Sanders, really raising questions about the trade deals, um, really challenging the U.S. going to war in Iraq, but that is all overshadowed by the horrific racism and the Pandora's box he is opening with hate, with encouraging violence, that's so terrifying, uh, being questioned to the credit of the mainstream media about whether he'll disavow the support of a Klan leader, right, David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan. And he's like saying, well, I'd have to look more into it. Like, which particular chapter of the Klan are you referencing? <laughs> the first time I heard him say I'd have to think about something. <laughs> But what's terrifying about this is that he is giving license. I mean, he changes his view every day on every issue. But he opens a box that allows people who, this underbelly of American society, tapping into a stream of hate when he says he'll build this wall on the Mexican border, um, when he says they won't allow Muslims into this country. And it's not only Donald Trump. You know, then you have the Democratic mayor of Roanoke citing FDR's program of putting over 120,000 Japanese Americans in internment camps. Our guest in San Francisco the other day said, no, don't say, no, in Los Angeles the other day, said, don't say internment camps. These were concentration camps. These people were held. She said, my family was held for years, lost all their property. Um, you know, this terrible program of Japanese-American internment across the country. And the Roanoke mayor 
who was a Democrat, said, you know, this is what we do in this country. This was FDR's policy. It's so important, then, we have a media that not only brings out the voices of everyone here, but goes back in time. Because I really think when they say, oh, the Klan did this or the Klan, for young people, it, it doesn't really resonate, register what these hate groups, these violent, murderous groups represented in the past. So we go back and tell the story of lynching. Who would have thought that when I was telling you about the Klan blowing up KPFT that I wasn't just talking about history, why I have to tell that story? Because we are now seeing a resurgence of this today. It must be challenged. The media can be the greatest force for peace, and yet it's used as a weapon of war. In Democracy Now!, the book, 20 years covering the movements changing America, and I just wanted to get a sense of time. How many minutes do I have? Because afterwards, me and Dennis and, or Dennis and David and I will be, we wrote a book after all. Um, will be signing books. And I just want to say a couple things. Um, this is our first week um, of the book being published. The actual pub date was April 12th, so you're among the first people to get this book, which is such a tremendous honor. Now, if you get two books, and of course we came late, so we gave uh, the booksellers here at Skylight Books this late, but if you get two books, you get a free DVD. Um, and you can't get the DVD alone. And if you say, well, could I get one book and a DVD? The DVD is more expensive than the second book, so you can do the math there. <laughs> it is an hour-and-a-half interview that Nermeen Sheikh and I did with... Glenn Greenwald. Um, Glenn, who was in Arizona recently to have a big event with Noam Chomsky and Ed Snowden by video stream, where he's in political exile in Russia, who changed this country, changed the world by exposing the level of surveillance we are under. Um, and this hour and a half is fantastic, dealing with everything from the what he describes as the coup in Brazil. You know, Glenn lives in Rio de Janeiro. Um, what talking about surveillance, talking about information, talking about war and peace. So two books, you get the DVD. Um, why would you get two books? Think of stockpiling <laughs> books for holidays, birthdays, friends, giving one to a public library, a high school, a college library, a prison library. Now, why would you do that aside from supporting Skylight Books, which is a great thing? And as David said, I mean, coming through to bookstores like these, these sanctuaries of dissent, we do not take this lightly. So many thousands of bookstores have closed, just as libraries are also shortening their hours. We want to turn this around. Independent bookstores and communities communities are an oasis, and we want them not only to just barely limp along, but to thrive. Um, and uh, it's always great to get on the New York Times bestseller list, especially when the New York Times doesn't like to mention Democracy Now! very much. I mean, even though I think, I have faith that in the future, Webster will change its definition of exclusive, and it will say, what Democracy Now! broadcast a year before everyone else. You know, <laughs> we will see uh, on CNN or MSNBC exclusive, and we look at each other at Democracy Now! and we say, didn't we interview her last week? Didn't we look at her... Uh, 
a year ago. My favorite was one day on MSNBC in their billboard. That's the beginning of the show. They showed a video of a guest talking. It actually had the Democracy Now! logo, the Statue of Liberty, her torture microphone in the corner. But the but the uh, lower third, that's what you call that strip at the bottom that identifies them, uh, covered it up. And that cover-up said exclusive. <laughs> and so, you know, they were going to interview the person live, so they wanted to have a clip at the beginning. I get that. And it was our clip of interviewing. I don't know if it was a week or a month or a year before. I said, <laughs> um, But... Uh, so, the New York Times. Yes, uh, to be on the Times bestseller list. They don't like to mention us in their papers, uh, in their pages, but this is just a mathematical equation, and it forces them to mention democracy now. So, for our previous books, that that's when we get mentioned. And why does that matter? Bookstores, unlike Skylight Books, the more commercial ones, and we've been amazed at this when we go around, they don't have booksellers deciding what are the wonderful books we would like to offer you, real people who love the taste, the feel, the read, the smell of books. David and I grew up on the street of the public library in New York. It was our living room, and my dad sat on the library board for 25 years. It was just a part of our lives. Um, But books sellers here, um, they choose books carefully. Um, for example, I, you know, just looking here, I mean, there's so many books I just want to talk about. This is why I had so much trouble in college. I would sit down in a library. I thought the library is the last place to study. You know, you come in with the full intent of doing your physics or biochem, and then you see Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me. Oh, wait, let me, I'm just going to read it really quickly, and then I'll do my homework. My mother would call me constantly, and she'll say, were you able to get your work done tonight? I said, I read the greatest book. Did you go to the library? Yes, that's where I found it. Uh, I just never got why libraries were places of study, of pure enjoyment, yes, but getting your work done. Uh, But I see Ta-Nehisi Coates and between the world and me. Um, you know, Tanahasi Coates came on Democracy Now! He talked about his book, but then he came back. It was the one place he went on uh, TV again. Uh, and after he had done his uh, extended piece, uh, challenging Bernie Sanders on why he rejected reparations outright. Uh, it was very interesting. We played a clip of Obama responding, of Clinton responding, and Bernie. And he started off when asking, would you support reparations? He started off by saying, well, no, but I think we have to look at the issue of inequality. Um, if you actually listen to Hillary Clinton, she says, would you support reparations? And Hillary Clinton said, we have to look at the issue of inequality. She just was much more finessed and polished and not starting with that no, but actually said the same thing. And President Obama the same, asked about this said it's racial inequality that we have to address. Anyway, we went through those clips. We talked all about his critique. And at the end, well, his son was there um, in the studio, uh, his uh, son, Samari, for whom he wrote this book. And um, Samari was standing there, a lithe string bean of a teen. And um, I said at the end, I mean, we had like 20 seconds left. And I wasn't planning to ask this, but I just said, "Um, will you who will you be voting for? And he looks up and he sees his son. It's, he's off camera. And he says, ah, oh, shucks, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so that got enormous attention. That went viral. But um, 
so seeing all these books, these lovely, lovely, this reservoir, this gold mine of uh, creativity, um, of the words that people put together, their way of expressing themselves. I mean, I just want to stay here for the entire tour, not do it and read all of this, but... Um, a lot of bookstores just stock the New York Times bestseller list. You know, you go in an airport, you'll go somewhere. There's no, there's no um, person there who is making any decisions. It's just the bestseller list. But we want to get in those bookstores because, you know, people come in of great goodwill and faith and curiosity. I mean, they're coming into a bookstore, and they think this is, these are the only books, and they're the celebrity books, and we want to provide a roadmap to another place, another world, many other universes, a roadmap to independent media and and the great wealth of voices um, that make up this country and the world, the people who make movements, and the movements make history. I really do think that those who are concerned about war and peace, those who are concerned about the growing inequality in this country, as one young, as one man said to me as I was walking in Raymond, whose book I just signed. Talk about poverty. Poverty. The growing inequality between not only rich and poor, but the rich and the rest of us. You have 62, 63 wealthiest people in the world. 42 of them are from the United States. Two-thirds of them. They make more than three and a half billion people, than half the globe. Those are concerned about war and peace, against inequality, about inequality, about the fate of the planet, are not a fringe minority, not even a silent majority, but the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take it back and build our own media and also challenge the corporate media because they're using a national treasure. They're using the public airwaves that were built by all of us. It's not private property, right, as Woody Guthrie would say. It's not that land is our land, TV land. And it matters. It's not the private property of private corporations. It's the way people learn about the world. And we've got to open it up. You know the difference between what you get on Democracy Now! A 12 and 14 year old brother and sister who come in from Pakistan to testify before Congress and then come straight to Democracy Now! studios and talk about what it was like when they were picking okra with their grandma in Pakistan and a drone strike eviscerated their grandmother in front of them, Manama Bibi. We write about her in this book. This 12-year-old girl and this 14-year-old boy came with their school teacher father. The U.S. had refused to give a visa to their lawyer, who's more than a lawyer. He's been representing drone victims for a long time in Pakistan, and I think they figured, the State Department, we don't have to deny the whole family. It would look really bad. If we deny the man who speaks English, the man who navigates them through a larger world, there's no way the school teacher and his two kids are going to come to the country that blew up their grandmother. But they did. 
That is the passion that's inspired when someone is wrongly targeted. And I do care about this country's national security. I care about the security of the children here, of all of you here. But there's nothing that's going to decrease, challenge that security more than blowing up innocent people around the world. And so these children said on Democracy Now!, the little boy, Zubair, said he's completely scarred, as is his sister. They'd gone through a number of operations. And he said, when people ask me about my grandma, and he was translated, um, she's not just my grandma. She was everyone's grandma. Should we live together in a community? And he said, now we look forward to gray skies because when there are gray skies um, the drones won't come when there are gray skies it's too cloudy for them what we fear are blue skies I think we can turn this around you know, I remember a few years ago, and we write about this in Democracy Now!, when Medea Benjamin, the co-founder of Code Pink, interrupted President Obama at National Defense University. Um, he was giving his address on drone wars and why we will kill people around the world. You know, he didn't say this, but, you know, without finding people guilty, without trial, without jury, the U.S. Pentagon being the ultimate executioner with the approval that the president signs off on the kill list. Um, and he was explaining the policy. And Medea Benjamin, who has been arrested so many times um, protesting uh, for peace, interrupted him and started shouting, <coughs> I love my country. I, we were watching on television from the newsroom. Uh, I love my country. Explain why you killed Tariq Aziz, who is a teenager in Pakistan who had gone back to his village to document the drone killings. He had held a news conference with his friends um, in a major city. And, then, and we played that news conference. And then he went back home. And two days later, he was killed in a drone strike. She said, why did you take Tariq Aziz's life? And then why did you take the life of that Denver-born 16-year-old American citizen, Abdurrahman Alaki, uh, who was killed, eviscerated in a drone strike in Yemen? Why? Why did you kill him, she said, as she's being dragged out of the room? Interestingly, as she was being pulled out, um, President Obama said, you need to listen to that woman. Of course, the cameras aren't on her, they're on him, and you don't see her being taken out. Um, it, you know, it takes a lot of courage to do something like that. And I get a call immediately from one of the networks, hey, you want to come on our broadcast tomorrow, I think they said, or it was later that night. I said, to talk about what? Um, again, you know, the pundits who know so little about so much explaining the world to us and getting it so wrong, to talk about Medea Benjamin's action. I said, oh, I watched it on TV like you. I was trying to make out her words. It was very powerful, very moving. Um, and they said, so would you come on and talk about it? I said, I think this time, though she gets arrested a lot, this time they didn't actually put her in jail. You could probably call her. Certainly what we were doing, we were going to have her on the show the next morning. I, I didn't want to give, <coughs> give them the exclusive. 
because we had it for the next morning. And what does that mean? We don't tell people not to talk to other networks. We encourage them to. In fact, we encourage these networks to steal this story, please. <laughs> um, but, you know, I did say we're going to have her on tomorrow. That's why I knew she was available. You could probably sneak in and get her for tonight. And they said, you know, we can't do that. I said, wait, you'll have me on describing what me and you saw today on television. But the woman who did it, the woman at the heart of the story, and that's why Democracy Now! is so powerful. I mean, just the, following the basic tenets of good journalism, you go to the heart of the story. You go to the people who are engaged, are so passionate about something, you put them on the air, and then you who meet them on the air, you make up your own mind. You might say, I'm touched by her bravery, but I think her point is wrong. You might say, is she crazy? You might say, what a brilliant woman. But this is how we meet each other. And if we don't know each other personally, we live in a huge world. In the media, we can meet many more people. We don't have to have this filtered media these gatekeepers who bring you these know-nothing pundits. There's a reason why Democracy Now! grew from nine community radio stations in 1996 to over 1,400 today with a new station picking us up every week simply because we let people speak for themselves or tell their stories if we can't reach them, if they're in prison, if they have been disappeared, or if it's dangerous to their livelihood or their lives to tell their own story. But that is a basic tenet of journalism that we all know. Let someone describe their own experience because the language they use... You know, I think about even Occupy, uh, and I, I, we don't have time to go through the year 2011, but it was astounding, from the Tunisian uprising that sparked the Egyptian uprising that went on to Wisconsin, 150,000 people marching against the busting of public unions, oh, the teachers and the nurses' public unions, because Governor Walker assured the police and the firefighters he wouldn't go after them. The problem he had is that the police and the firefighters were married to the teachers and the nurses, and they did not appreciate this destabilizing of their community. So everyone rose up in the capital they occupied, and they slept there. I never saw anything like it when we flew into Wisconsin to broadcast from the middle of the state capital that was occupied by 150,000 people, including the biggest guys I ever saw, the Oshkosh prison guards. I went up to them, and I said, my God, I mean... What are you doing here? I said, um, I said, who did you vote for? And they said, President, uh, Governor Walker, of course. I said, so what are you doing here? Uh, protesting Governor Walker, of course. I said, why? And he said he never said he was going to do this when he ran for office. Or outside in the freezing cold, the coldest days Wisconsin had seen, everyone marching in the snow, 150,000 strong, an older gentleman with white hair and glasses carrying a sign that said, IRS auditors against Walker. <laughs> and I said, well, what party are you with? And he said, the Republican Party. I said, but you're governor is Republican. He never said he was going to do this. So I said, well, you have a mighty weapon there, IRS auditors against Walker. And looking across the expanse of the state capitol, all people as far as the eye could see, but across the way was the Labor Museum, Wisconsin Amazing. It's the home of the John Birch Society, founded by the father of 
The Koch brothers, Fred Koch, Charles and David Koch. Fred Koch was one of the founders of the John Birch Society, that racist, segregationist, anti-civil rights organization that went after Dr. King and so many others. Um, but it's also home, 1932 founding of AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, Municipal Employees. And if you think, well, but what happened with, um, with those protests? You know, Governor Walker was reelected. He did run for president and didn't make it. And I think this contributed to that. Uh, but, you know, wasn't it a flash in the pan? Really? A flash in the pan? I don't think so. Go back in history and look at other times people took on these unions. Look at 1968, April 4th, the day Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. What was he doing there? If you think, well, these are smaller issues than the bigger issues. Dr. King went to Memphis simply to stand with local sanitation workers who were organizing a local of AFSCME. Every little bit matters. It counts, and it is a matter of life and death. And then go through that year and... You have the Keystone XL protest, 1,200 people arrested at the end of the summer in front of the White House, like Naomi Klein and get all her books here, and Bill McKibben get his too. And then three weeks later, you have Occupy Wall Street, September 17, 2011. You know, the one that CNN did their piece on seriously. <laughs> Thousands of people stream into Zuccotti Park, and they are representing every different issue. And the media mocks them precisely because they are. Are they kidding? Can't they get it together, what they care about? And where are their leaders anyway? They aren't leaderless. They are leaderful. The encampments were eviscerated, but Occupy wasn't. Uh, I think we see that when we look at these rallies. Bernie Sanders, I think the uh, the estimate was somewhere between 27,000 and just under 50,000 people gathered in Washington Square Park on April 13th, just a few days ago in New York City. I went to the South Bronx rally before this 100-city tour. Thousands and thousands of people. But on Super Tuesday 3 night, when all the candidates, you know, it was five states, Missouri, Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, and Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, Missouri, and Illinois. And all the candidates were heard that night because Rubio pulled out. You watched his speech. Kasich won his first. That was his home state of Ohio. You watched his speech. Ted Cruz, you saw him. Hillary Clinton, she'd won three. But Missouri and her home state of Illinois, it was too close to call. The media was focusing on this. They were saying, Sanders, Clinton, Sanders, Clinton, it's too close to call. That's when she gave her speech. You know, it's better to give it after you've won three that night than after you know whether you want, if you lost the other two. And they were playing, this was important. But then they go to, we're waiting for Donald Trump. He's about to hold a news conference, they said, and they showed the empty podium. They just kept showing it minute after minute, waiting for about a half an hour, empty podium uh, at one of his mansions in Florida. And he said it was going to be a news conference. Of course, he didn't take any questions from the press, but they waited and waited. And then he gave a speech. And where was Bernie Sanders? Okay, you think they'll go to him next. But they never went to him. They didn't even say, where was he? I think, did he, like, fall asleep or something? Uh, he's not out on this huge night? Well, the fact is, he was. He was in Phoenix, Arizona, giving a speech to thousands and thousands of thousands of people. You know Phoenix, Arizona, where on primary day, 
and this galvanized Republican and Democratic you know, primary, where many more people were voting, they cut the polling places from 200 to 60. Inexplicably, so you had to wait five hours to vote. What working person can wait five hours to vote? That's a whole other story, but you waited and waited, and Sanders, you never hear. And so the next morning on Democracy Now!, we play an excerpt of Sanders' speech. Who would have thought it would be a revolutionary act simply to play an excerpt of a speech of a major party presidential candidate? Every other one who had gotten much less support, one of them dropping out, Marco Rubio, every one of them played except for him. He had just been erased. And we need a media that is fair. Uh, We need a media that gives voice to everyone. Um, As Noam Chomsky says, the media so often manufactures consent and that has to be challenged. So Occupy occupies the language. Yes, they lose their encampments because the police go after them. But I think, and I'm seeing the dictionaries over here, I think it was Webster's, David could tell me, but one of them said that Occupy was the most used word that year. Right? If you said 1%, if you said 99%, Everyone knew what you meant. Occupy, occupy the language. You change the language. You change the world. And I want to end uh, by mentioning that among the issues that people cared about was this placard uh, that many people carried into Zuccotti Park. And it was, I am Troy Davis. I am Troy Davis. Troy Davis, the African-American prisoner on death row in Georgia. He had had three previous death warrants. All had been vacated. His sister Martina Correa, a Persian Gulf Army nurse, came back to this country to fight for her brother's life and her own. She was dying of breast cancer, but she wouldn't stop. And I wanted to end with this story, and then we will sign books. You don't, even if you don't get a book, by the way, not to mention two, maybe you don't want to get one, but you can come up to us and say hi, or two things. You can email us story ideas at stories at democracynow.org anytime. Or you can sign up for a daily digest. We're passing that around, but you can also just use your cell phones, text Democracy Now, one word, Democracy Now, to 66866. Easy to remember, 66866. You'll get a request back for your email address, put it in, and then your email and your email, the email will come and you can approve it and you'll get our daily headlines and news alerts every day. Also, if you've taken pictures, if you want to tweet, Instagram, or whatever, you can use the hashtag covering the movements. So um, let me end uh, with two moments, and then we can't wait to meet you personally. Uh, One is Troy Davis. Troy Davis was slated to die on September 21st, 2011. September 21st, 2011. I'm not going to go into his full story, but suffice it to say that the people who were fighting for his life were not only the traditional anti-death penalty activists, not only exonerated death row prisoners, but prison wardens, a former U.S. president, and the Pope. That should give you pause. He'd been on his life for half of, he's been on death row for half of his life. This is the story of a struggle against death that refuses to die.
So democracy now raced to Jackson, Georgia, where the death row prison was. We didn't know what would happen that night. Three other death warrants had been vacated, a few of them at the very last minute. And we decided we would be there. If we could be in the death chamber, we would have done that. Um, Because we think if you see the images, you can make a much better decision about what you want your country to represent. We were the only news broadcast to be live continuously from the prison grounds. Morehouse and Spelman students had marched from Atlanta carrying candles. A thousand people outside the prison grounds. On the prison grounds, they allowed 150 people. It was the leaders of human rights organizations. It was Troy's family. We got a press packet. It was very thin. It had a few pages, and it emphasized what Troy would be having for dinner that night. He he had already turned down the special meal. You could ask for anything before you're executed, but he had said no. So this is what we got in our press packet. He would be offered grilled cheeseburgers, oven brown potatoes, baked beans, coleslaw cookies, and a grape beverage. And another page listed the lethal cocktail that would follow. It was just four lines. Pentobarbital, pancuronium, bromide, potassium chloride, ativan, a sedative. The pentobarbital anesthetizes, the pancuronium bromide paralyzes, the potassium chloride stops the heart. Davis refused the sedative and the last supper. By 7 p.m., the U.S. Supreme Court was reportedly reviewing Davis's plea for a stay. The case was referred to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who hails from Pinpoint, Georgia, a community founded by freed slaves that's near Savannah, where Troy had lived. The Supreme Court denied the plea. Davis's execution began at 10.53 p.m. A prison spokesperson delivered the news to the reporters outside. Time of death, 11.08 p.m. You know how an execution works in this country. The prisoners laid out on a cross. It looks like a cross. And his arms are strapped down, his legs, so that they can put the injection into the arm. And at the very last minute, the curtains are pulled back. It's a window, and the audience views the state killing. Uh, You've got the family members of the murder victim. You've got the friends of the prisoner, if the prison allows that, and you've got the reporters. So the eyewitnesses to the execution stepped out. According to an Associated Press reporter who was there, these were Troy Davis's final words. He said, I'd like to address the McPhail family. The officer who was killed was a hero cop. He was Mark McPhail. He was a security guard late that night on his off time, and he was working at a a, uh, Greyhound station, and a man was being pistol whipped in a parking lot, a homeless man, and he went to save him. He never got a chance to even draw his gun. He was shot. So many witnesses pointed the finger at a man named Red Coles because he had a gun. They said he had pistol whipped this homeless man named Larry Young. Um, But after Officer McPhail died, Red Coles immediately went to the police station with a lawyer, and he pointed the finger at Troy Davis who said he had fled the scene because he saw Red's gun. 
He had gone to Atlanta, and he was 18 years old. And his sister Martina said, oh, my God, they've launched a manhunt for you. They saw it on TV. They said, come back, come back. So Martina went to get him. He came in to the police station. He thought, it's just a case of mistaken identity. I'll clear it up. And they charged him with first-degree murder of a police officer. He had his trial two years later. The jury decided in two hours. And that's how he ended up on death row for 20 years and ended up executed on September 21st, 2011. Troy's final words. I'd like to address the McPhail family. Let you know, despite the situation you're in, I'm not the one who personally killed your son, your father, your brother. I am innocent. I did not have a gun. All I can ask is that you look deeper into this case so that you really can finally see the truth. I ask my family and friends to continue to fight this fight. And then he turned to his executioners and said, For those about to take my life, God have mercy on your souls. And may God bless your souls. The state of Georgia took Davis's body to Atlanta for an autopsy, charging his family for the transportation. On Troy Davis's death certificate, the cause of death is listed simply as homicide. As we stood on the grounds of the prison, it was just about quarter to midnight, just after Troy Davis was executed, the Georgia Department of Corrections threatened to pull the plug on our broadcast. The show was over. I was reminded of what Mahatma Gandhi reportedly answered when asked what he thought of Western civilization. He said, I think it would be a good idea. (laughs) I wanted to end back in World War II where we started. You had the radio station that started by a war resistor who said, we need a media outlet not run by corporations that profit from war, but run by journalists and artists. And so let's go back again to World War II with this short, brief story of unbelievably brave young people, a brother and sister named Hans and Sophie Scholl in Germany. They weren't Jewish, they were German Christians, and they thought, what can we do in the face of the Nazi atrocity? Together with their professor and some other students and workers, they thought, well, the best we can do is put out pamphlets to ensure that the German people would never be able to say they didn't know. They put out a series of six pamphlets about what was happening, and on one of those pamphlets it said, we will not be silent. They got these pamphlets dropped everywhere, in the middle of the night, in schoolyards and alleyways and marketplaces, and then they were captured, Hans and Sophie and their professor. And they were charged, they were captured by the Gestapo, they were tried by the Nazis, they were charged, tried, convicted, and beheaded. But that motto, that saying should be the Hippocratic Oath of journalists today, should be the Hippocratic Oath of us all today. We will not be silent. Democracy Now! No, no, I'm going to set up a table here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.